But right now, though, we get to sit down. I've been shooting the breeze during the news and off air with everybody's favorite commentator. He is the resident uh, current affairs and news analyst at uh, ENCA, Angelo Fick. Um, Angelo, you're very intimidating. Very intimidating, but um, uh, but there's, there's just this draw and attraction to your intellect, you know, that just keeps us coming back. And I want to explore that, whether or not this is something you hear <laughs> over and over again. But he has taught and researched all sorts of subject matters over the years. He has over 20 years of teaching and research experience across a variety of disciplines at universities in South Africa and in Europe. The likes of UCT, Rhodes, UKZ, UKZN, Utrecht University, uh, Saarbrücken University, and then, of course, Witz University. Um, so he's an academic who is now on our TV screens providing much-needed analysis. There's always this depth. There's always this depth to suggest that he is a, 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 an incredible intellect. Good afternoon, Angelo. Good afternoon, Azania. Your listeners might be very disappointed <laughs> after that build-up to finally <laughs> hear, oh, it's him. <laughs> <laughs> so I was asking you off air that about whether or not you're enjoying television because it's worlds apart from your academic life. So what is your verdict about this TV experience? Well, I think enjoy is the wrong word for me. For me, you know, what I do in the daytime in public um, around other people is work. And work for me is not a sense of I don't want enjoyment from it. I get satisfaction from it. Enjoyment is when I'm in the privacy of my own home, doing the things with the people around me that, that matter to me significantly. And it's a lesson I learned very early on in life that you mm-hmm. focus on. You do stuff in public for work purposes. But as Toni Morrison's father said to her in the 1930s, you only work there, you get to come home. And it's home that really matters. And that's where you have to have enjoyment, happiness, contentment. Work is what you do in order to have a sense of uh, fulfillment about public life. And there you need to get satisfaction rather than enjoyment. So I am satisfied with the things I'm able to do in television, um, but I don't look for enjoyment there. So it's not that I don't enjoy it. It's just that I'm not looking for enjoyment there. So how did that lesson come about? about work just being the space where you get to express certain aspects of yourself, but that the most important is home. Well, growing up in a family where, you know, my parents, my father was somebody who worked in public and did some private work as well. Um, his work was always something that gave him a certain sense of satisfaction, but his joy came from his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and my sense of Always, I've never had a job where I go, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And so very early on as a university teacher, campus was where I would end up going to do certain things that I found a certain kind of pleasure in, otherwise you wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But it was not joy. It was not this, oh, I look forward to going into work. I, yeah. I've never had that. I, and I think it comes from school. I never enjoyed school. School was what you did because, you know, your mother wanted you out of the house. <laughs> um, and so for me, work is where you go. You do certain things. You do them as well as you can. You get a certain kind of satisfaction from it. But you always know that your core base is home. And given what we in Johannesburg or in other cities in South Africa pay as rental or to live in the places we do, I like to spend the majority of my time in spaces that I pay a lot of money to live in. Yes. That's for me home. (laughs) You're right. I spoke to one of your colleagues, Matuba, earlier on. And uh, what people don't know, of course, is that you are called the Tsar. At ENCA, and people bow to you. <laughs> this is how rumors spread and things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but these are part of the nicknames. I mean, I know Shahan's nickname uh, uh, within the newsroom and so on. But there is, I think it's quite fitting because there is something quite regal and royal about you. Oh, that's not what people who know me very well often think. <laughs> really? But um, 
It's a kind of, I think it starts off with a uh, an ironizing nickname. So um, one of my favorite writers is Leo Tolstoy, the Russian novelist. Mm-hmm. And my favorite book of all time is Anna Karenina. And so in one of my earlier social media platform um, engagements when I was younger, uh, I invented a persona that wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And the persona was, um, you know, a Russian aristocrat. Uh, who had sort of scathing things to say on social media that I couldn't at the time <laughs> um, say by, you know, in my own voice. Mm. And and it's part of my kind of fascination with, with fiction and invented worlds. And the nickname sort of began then, it just stuck. Um, and now I self-ironically call myself that because actually there are people in my life who suddenly don't treat me in that way at all, who <laughs> remind you and, the, you know, small people are very quick to remind you that you are not who you think you are, yes. that they're actually the ones in control. Mm. Uh, and you, whether you're writing or whether you're speaking, uh, the way you use language, the way you weave language is often just a marvel. I mean, sometimes you forget the content of what Angelo is saying. You're just kind of marveling at how uh, you use the language. Have you always loved books? Have you always loved words? Because uh, uh, what's also been said, because I canvassed some of your friends to hear more about you because you're intensely private. And they said your home is like a library. Well, I think of my home as a refuge, as the place you go to, to, you know, it's where you only allow certain kinds of energies or certain kinds of people or certain kinds of voices, kinds of voices in. Mm. My relationship with books, I think growing up in a household with people who read, um, parents who read. So even at our poorest, my mother had subscriptions to book services. So some of the first books I read were books that my mother had ordered in. So, you know, Bessie Smith's a tree grows in Brooklyn. Um, my father's was always reading at the kitchen table mm-hmm. after coming home from work before going off to do his second set of jobs. Um, and so I grew up with a household that got, for example, two or three newspapers into the house every day. Um, and books were always there. I had older siblings who were an older sibling who was a teacher. So, you know, the school books that she brought back were things that I read. Um, and but the real awakening for me came in sort of after undergraduate studies mm. when I encountered people for whom the reading moment was a moment to try and make sense of the world. It wasn't just an escape from the world. It was an engagement with the world. And yeah. that that encounter has been invaluable for me because lessons that I learned in that course, in those courses in 1993, have stuck with me. Um, and not just in terms of making sense of the world for the public um, consumption in terms of my work, but also in relation to other things, like when you're having a fight with a 10-year-old or when you're having a fight with a 30-year-old who behaves like a 10-year-old, yeah. you know, it's useful to go, oh, well, this is just a short story. You can get out of this. This chapter will end and some <laughs> other chapter will begin. And if you think of, if I think of my life in those sort of ways, I can also mark the ways in which how, in the older I get, I can mark particular periods in my life with books I read at the time that influenced me and the way I understood it. Mm-hmm. And the people who introduced me to those books and in those ways of reading. I went back to one of your columns where you talk about how six of you, uh, when you were an instructor at Fitz, and how six of you got to spend a lot of time with uh, J.M. Kutsir, and just that experience, uh, what he was teaching you about novels, about writing, and the kind of writers you were analyzing and that he exposed you to. But your uh, varsity experience, uh, you experienced the transition in this country uh, on campus. So, that must have been very special, very special to have spent time with one of our best authors. So let's first, tiny correction there, Jane Kutsia was at UCT at the was University of Cape Town before ah. the University of Cape Town calls you to complain that mm. you've just given mm. away their Nobel Prize winner. Uh-oh. <laughs> 
Thank you. So yeah, I arrived at the University of Cape Town to register and my parents were not next to me. I was put on a bus as a minor and I arrived and I registered and my position was I want to be here at nine o'clock and I want to be out of here by lunch. What have you got in second, third, fourth and fifth? I'm not interested in anything that you offer after lunch because I don't want to be here. Mm -hmm. So I extended my approach to school. I want to spend as little time here as possible. Um, to my experience of university. The irony, of course, is that I ended up spending 20 years at university, (laughs) much to my parents' amusement. But I arrived a week before Nelson Mandela was released. Classes began a week after he was released. And so my experience of the University of Cape Town um, coincides with that last phase of apartheid paranoia. I mean, I clearly remember Desmond Tutu coming to a protest on the university campus for one of the access roads. And a tire was burning in front of him and the burning tire was getting out of control and the dean of the time stepped forward to kick the tire out of the way and the picture made the front page of the Cape Times at the time. Mm. By the time I finished my first degree, I'd finished those honor seminars with J.M. Kutsia and Andre Brunk in that year, in 1993. We, you know, I remember sitting at the end, it was the end of a, a seminar on the 18th century novel um, in that week and I'd gone home and we were going to pick up my sister-in-law who works as a nurse or worked at the time as a nurse at mm-hmm. Khretiskir Hospital and news of Chris Hani's assassination came through in 1993. And so what you have there is another moment in which I'm coming to intellectual consciousness in what shouldn't be a class, I mean, about intellectual consciousness in South Africa. It's, of course, about the 18th century English novel. Yes. But the way in which Joan Kutsia taught it was certainly to reflect on your moment of reading and how you make sense of this business of looking at people's notions and constructions of emotions mm-hmm. in 18th century England um, with the ways in which we construct race and emotion and identity and who is a full human being and who isn't in South Africa. Africa up until that point. And what you see the following here, of course, is the elections. And as a new instructor there, um, f- I'd been teaching for, I think, six weeks at the time. And the election queues and people sitting in front yeah. of televisions, sort of in classrooms, in offices, waiting for the results to come through. And so these epoch changing moments that I think many people, you know, haven't lived through or mm-hmm. have forgotten remain with me precisely because they're so tied into my own intellectual growth at the time. Yes. And as you said, this is the role uh, that uh, books have played in your life. But this conscientiousness that you have because you're vegan or, or vegetarian rather you've been for many many years um you you save water you recycle so there is this uh wokeness or uh, this consciousness you are conscious about the world that you live in and the role that you play in it and it seems like it's always been very carefully considered and you, you have stepped into these these thoughts or this way of being quite consciously quite aware well, I suppose, you know, I, I really, I'm not a proselytizing person, so I don't go out there suggesting that people shouldn't do things that, you know, they're doing, that they should do things the way I do it. Um, I think partly it's uh, the conscientizing comes from growing up in a household in which uh, the idea was always to leave the world better than you found it. Mm-hmm. And whether that was through your teaching or through, you know, faith-based activity or political activity or just plain old picking up the litter as you go along. Um, and my mother's neighbors are, you know, infamous for knowing that they have to keep the gutter clean or my mother will come and clean it oh. for you <laughs> and tell you that, the, you know, 
edge of the street outside your house that you hold's job to pick up after you. She's here to wipe the desks. Right, right. Um, and speaking of children, Pumla Kola always refers to you in her writing. And in the book, The Feminist, in fact, she says that nearly a decade later, I watch how our children cannot imagine life without him. For more than half our lives now, Angelo teaches me that feminism is not just talk, that the stuff of our academic research and the engine of our creative writing. He teaches me that feminism is love and work every day, that sometimes feminism uh, loves beauty and life-changing power is so profound that it still makes me weep nearly a decade later. So I know that she is a dear friend to you mm-hmm. um, and that you uh, she refers to the role that you play in her children's lives, but you're also the godfather to a young child uh, in, in Cape Town. So speak to me about that relationship. But is this responsibility to future generations, clearly? So I think that was very generous of Pumla, probably <laughs> highly undeserved. Um, but to me, the relationship with children is not just the relationship to individual children. So there is that component to it where mm-hmm. you have a particular individual. And I think it's important for anybody to have children in their lives, even those of us who choose not to reproduce, um, you know, at that level should have children in our lives because they're a great reminder of why it is that paying attention to the world is important because children are paying attention very closely because they're desperate to try and figure out what what is going on in the world and how to fit into it. And so in observing them, in trying to figure out, to help them learn, and you learn so much more about yourself and the things that you take for granted. Yeah. Um, and so having a child in your life for me is is not just a kind of, it's a nice to have. It is an absolutely essential component. And I'm not one who's particularly indulgent of children. I mean, I think, you know, children love structure. I provide that structure in my relations with them. But I'm also not interested in cajoling them. So if a child walks into your space, asks you a question and walks out, that's that child's choice. Your job as an adult is to keep that child safe, to keep that child fed, to keep that child alive, and to keep that child somehow, uh, you know, sort of vaguely humanly engaged with the world. And, and children are great for telling you what their boundaries are um, and when they're bored with you. I mean, my famous, my favorite story is trying to talk to a six-year-old about her ballet performance and, you know, sort of getting into the moment and asking questions and the six-year-old eventually saying, can I stop you? Can I ask you something? And I said, suddenly, and she said, why are we still talking about this? Which is something that I think often adults would be great at learning <laughs> that skill <laughs> right. where you can say to somebody, why are we still, still talking, talking about, about this? this? And, and so for me, children are not just a kind of cute Mm-hmm. In fact, they're not cute at all in that presence in their, in your life. They're interesting conduits for learning about the world because they have, I think, a slightly more open approach to the world and are a lot more curious about the world. And right. they will allow us, even to, you know, in terms of things of politics, and children always ask questions. And the trick is always to answer honestly. And if you would be satisfied with the answer, a child mm-hmm. will be satisfied with the answer. So if a child asks you why the president is X or Y or Z, or why policemen and women are doing J, or why poor people are the way they are, yeah. you have to answer honestly. Because a child is in the business of trying to figure out the meaning of the world, and they'll spot your lie. Because mm-hmm. if you answer that question differently mm-hmm. tomorrow, they will know that you have wavered on your answer. Absolutely. Now, you are, as I was saying earlier on, you have extensive teaching experience. You call it teaching and not lecturing, interestingly. Why is that? Because I think the term lecturing implies that you're telling other people what they should be learning and what they should know. And it's not information imparting. Anybody who's ever taught, or anybody who taught well, and I'm not saying I did, but my best teachers were not people who taught me information. They taught me ways of 
making sense of information. They taught me ways of understanding the world and of behaving in the world differently from the way in which I came into that learning moment from. Mm -hmm. And so the teaching is merely you're facilitating the learning of hundreds or thousands of people across a particular space. Um, but you're not there just to tell them how to behave and what to do, which I think is what what people mistake lecturing for because to lecture somebody is to tell them what to do yes um and so yeah so i call it teaching yeah and also you've done research across a variety of disciplines so very broad and there's 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 width and there's depth to your knowledge anybody who's listened to you or has read uh your your pieces it certainly gets that sense so why not a phd where are Ang- Angelo's books? Are you are you planning to write a book? It almost stands to reason that there would be a book. <laughs> so those <laughs> are multiple questions. Fred. So let's go with the first question, yes. uh, which was about um, the PhD. The PhD. I walked away from the PhD knowing that I was no longer interested in that game. That whatever I would get from a PhD, I already had which was a sense of self and a sense of being. Uh, the variety of disciplines had to do with retraining for very specific reasons that I had intellectually fallen out of, um, not love, but had fallen out of kind of a certain belief, if you want, in the humanities in the mid-2000s. And that was partly because of where I was teaching at the time and where I was in my life at the time. And so re-engineered my career, went off to Utrecht, um, joined the Center for Women's Studies there, worked with Rosie Braidotti, who's one of the major philosophers of our time, um, worked with feminist scholars and started thinking of feminist philosophies of science and then ended up teaching that or versions of that or things that emerged out of that for about five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, the PhD is not, I can see how other people value it. Um, I don't devalue it, but it isn't that important to me. And I'd met other people for whom it wasn't important, um, for whom, you know, being able to make an argument is not based on whether you're called doctor or professor. Mm -hmm. In fact, my famous example of this is a person who is a close friend of mine who once got promoted to a full professorship and, um, and it's not Pumla, it's somebody else, (laughs) (laughs) who then wrote to her partner who was also a professor and said, you know, I'm having difficulty accepting this, other people deserve it more. He wrote back and said, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this. Look around you. Look at else as a professor. The title means nothing. It's a promotion inside the university. It's for a new salary, a new power. That's all it is. As for the books, um, I have the Mexican poet Gabriel Zaid in mind. I like reading books, but I don't necessarily think that everybody who likes reading books should write books until I have the book that I think should be written that can't be, can't live inside me. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to read other people's books. And I'm also with Fran Lebovitz, who's a very close friend of Toni Morrison. And Toni Morrison is often misquoted or quoted in bad service as saying, um, if there's a book out there that you haven't read, it's time for you to write it. And Fran uh-huh. Lebovitz's response was, well, surely Toni Morrison didn't mean everybody. <laughs> because I do read a lot of books, but many of those books are bad books. They You're should right. never have been written. They're, they're just projects by people. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to visit my bad book on other people. I think if they want to read good books, Toni Morrison is still writing. Margaret Atwood is still writing. Yeah. Jim Kutzea yeah. is still writing. Zoe Wickham is still writing. We have thousands of good books out there. If I feel the need to and I can't hold it in anymore, I will visit my bad book on the public. Okay. All right. <laughs> we'll wait to see. We'll know that the moment has come. Yes. But on a lighter note, you're known for your dinner parties as well. Am I? Oh, dear. Yes. You've been known to put friends on probation if they show up late, if they cancel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my thing. To. I have a great thing about punctuality because mm-hmm. if somebody has invited you to their house, they've not invited you to, you know, a, f- a fast food outlet or a drive through They've actually <laughs> taken time to prepare the food. 
they've taken time to prepare their house, they've invited you into their space. Two things about Johannesburg that freaks me out is the casualness, and I blame social media and mobile phones, where people think they can just send you a little text message 20 minutes before you, we're going to be late. No, before we had mobile phones, we made an effort to be there on time. Before we had cars, we took the three buses required to be somewhere on time. I think you should respect the person and be on time. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I don't think people should ask who else is going to be there. You come to the dinner party, you're surprised by who is there, you either get along with them or if you find yourself having to sit next to somebody who's a member of the SS, you revise your relationship with the person who invited you and you find somebody else to sit next to and talk. But this business (laughs) of having to know who's going to be there is just absurd. I mean, it's like giving yourself a certain kind of importance which you don't have. So my dinner parties are very, you know, kind of interesting affairs. It's because I like to hear what other people have to say. Yes. And 30 seconds, someone described you as a cactus. Oh dear. You know, hard exterior, but very soft inside. Is that accurate? The cactus sounds kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think I have a hard exterior. I think I have firm boundaries. I have clear lines where I think people shouldn't cross. And I think most people should have such boundaries. And I crossed the line and hugged you earlier on. And you well, said no, I said, it. are we hugging? Because, <laughs> you know, it's also a country where you have to be quite clear in a moment in time where you don't just go around as a man hugging people. You yes. have to ask permission. But also just I think people mistake levels of intimacy and very soon they're somewhere where they shouldn't be. And if you have nice boundaries that you're clear and you teach your children to have nice boundaries and they're clear about it, it's it's a really far more structured and predictable world. Makes life easier for everybody. Let me share some uh, tweets quickly before we take headlines. Aisha says, Angelo was my lecturer when I was an undergrad at Rhodes University and had a major formative impact on my thinking and intellectual development. Another one um, from Simon, he says, Angelo taught me as part of my journalism degree at Rhodes University in 2007. Seriously bright. Understood about 5% of what he was saying. <laughs> Went over his head. Angelo, I think there's still so much more and I know that uh, you guard, you're guarded and you guard, of course, that that, you, that which you hold dear. But thank you. Thank you for allowing us a little bit in there. Thank you so much, Azania. It has thank been you. a learning experience for me, what yes. I was willing to tell and what I was not willing to tell. <laughs> there we go.